Well, it's great to see everyone this morning. We are currently studying through Paul's epistle to the Ephesians, and we are in the second chapter, and we're going to be looking at verses four through seven today. Ephesians chapter two, verses four through seven. Let me read them to you. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. In the first three verses of this chapter, verses that we looked at previously, we saw how men and women are by nature hopelessly lost, dead in trespasses and sins, in league with the devil and under his dominion, children of wrath and destined to eternal damnation. This is our state by nature. And there, there's nothing that you could do about it. There's nothing that I could do about it. There's nothing that anyone else could do about it. Apart from an act of God, we would have remained in an absolutely hopeless state. But the good news and Paul's focus here, as you remember, in this portion of the letter is good news. He's wanting us to understand in the greatest way possible how glorious the gospel is. So as I pointed out, he, he paints a, a dark background so that when he comes to telling the story of the gospel, it's so much brighter when seen in contrast with where we've been. And so these great words, having, having declared our hopeless state, these great words in verse four, but God, but God who is rich in mercy. You know, many places in scripture, we find uh, this type of a thing being communicated where the situation seemed hopeless. And really, it would have been unless God had intervened. But we find these little but gods in different places in Scripture. I think of the children of Israel when they were there in Egypt. And the great patriarch Jacob, he was on his deathbed. And he said to his son Joseph, he said, I'm dying, but God will visit you. And he'll take you back to the land that he promised to our fathers. And so there's that, but God, that, that intervention of God. Joseph himself, he was betrayed by his brothers. Maybe you remember the story. And he said to them, he said, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Another example of God's intervention, probably the greatest example of that was when they had laid Jesus in the tomb. We read in Acts chapter 13 that after they had taken him down from the cross, they laid him in the tomb. And that seemed like the end 
But then these great words, but God raised him from the dead. And so that's what we have. We have that here. Our condition was hopeless, but God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our sins, even when we were in this hopeless state, he made us alive together with Christ. And so today, we want to look at these verses, and in doing so, we're going to see, first of all, God's motive, or what moved God to do what he did, and secondly, we're going to see uh, his objective, what, what his ultimate aim is in doing what he did, and then thirdly, we'll consider briefly where we are destined to, where we're headed because of what God has done. And so what was God's motive? What was the driving factor behind this intervention on the part of God? Well, here Paul assembles four words to express the origins of God's saving initiative. He writes of God's mercy, love, grace, and kindness. You see, what we need to understand is that God was motivated to do what he did. God was motivated to intervene and to save us, not because we deserved it at all, not because we were even hoping that it might happen. Uh, all of this resulted uh, simply because of the goodness of God. God was motivated out of the kindness of his own being. It's because God is gracious. It's because God is is kind. That's the reason why he intervened in our situation. In our hopeless state, God had compassion on us. He's merciful and compassionate. And in offering us salvation through Christ, that is the greatest demonstration of his mercy and his compassion. One commentator said this, he said, we were dead and so helpless to save ourselves only mercy could reach the helpless, for mercy is love for the down and out. We were under God's wrath. Only love could triumph over wrath. We deserve nothing at God's hand but judgment. On account of our trespasses and sins, only grace could rescue us from our deserts, for grace is undeserved favor. Why then did God act out of his sheer mercy, love, grace, and kindness. The idea that we hear being tossed about in our culture today, the idea that God is a bloodthirsty, vengeful, hateful being is as far from the truth about God as you can get. God is nothing like that at all. If he were anything like what people suggest that he is, we wouldn't be here. We would have long ago been cast into hell. But it's because of God's graciousness. It's because of his mercy. As a matter of fact, uh, the prophet Jeremiah declared, it's because his mercies are new every morning and his compassions do not fail. It's because of that that we are not 
consumed. And so although some would suggest that God is this bloodthirsty, vengeful, hateful being, the Bible tells us otherwise. God's self-revelation found in Exodus chapter 34 is that he is merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Now notice that quotation was from Exodus. Exodus is the Old Testament. People so often say, oh, the God of the Old Testament was a tribal God, was a bloodthirsty, vengeful God. That's not what I read in my Old Testament. Here in Exodus, God reveals himself as merciful and compassionate as we come to the Psalms. David wrote the 103rd Psalm, and he said this. He said, the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in mercy. He will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor punished us according to our iniquities. For as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is his mercy toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. And here's my favorite line. As a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. This is the biblical picture of God. A God full of mercy and compassion. A God who's anxious to forgive and reluctant to judge and to punish. And I think if we stopped and thought about it and didn't just react so quickly to some of the things we see, if we stopped and thought about it, I think we could conclude that God is these things just by what we see. Because think about it. Humanity, mankind, the vast majority of people today on planet Earth, the 7 billion people or so, are living their lives with no regard to God whatsoever, with no regard to his laws, with no regard to his will. And yet, in a, in a general sense, people are living blessed lives. God continues to bless despite the fact that we uh, ignore him, we take advantage of him, we take him for granted, we snub our noses at him, we shake our fist at him. And yet, for the most part, judgments from God are very few and far between. Now, put yourself for a moment in a position, just thinking about it, Just think if there was somebody that treated you like that continually, regardless of all of your your gestures of kindness and your benevolent acts, if somebody just continued uh, not just to snub you, but to to shake their fist in your face or um, to, you know, do, do something even more offensive. You know, there's a gesture that many of us are, are familiar with that people use in our culture that's, that's quite offensive. And, you know, whenever people have used that gesture toward me, 
Uh, I'm highly offended. I, I want to break that finger off <laughs> that person's hand and stuff it down their throat. I mean, that's how, that's how annoyed I get by that kind of a thing. But, you know, look, the reality is, I don't want to be too graphic here, but you know, this, this is what humanity has been doing to God forever. Just basically um, just holding that, that finger up in his face. That, that's what we've been doing. If you really stop and think about it. But then think, think about how infrequent the judgments of God have been in, in the world. I mean, we, we could count them on one hand. We go back to well, the original judgment that took place in the garden. We could go back to the flood that took place in the days of Noah. We have another example in the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. We have the, the example of God judging the children of Israel or the, or the Canaanites. But really, apart from that, and those were, those were hundreds and sometimes uh, even thousands of years in between the judgments. And then we've been living for 2,000 years in this period of grace where there hasn't been any direct judgment of God poured out upon the world, yet there's, there's been this constant hostility coming from man toward God. So you see, if you just think about it in those terms, these passages that we just read, they become quite obviously true. God is full of compassion. He's merciful. He's gracious. He's slow to anger. We are much... Uh, more swift to anger. I've often thought to myself and said to God, God, if I were you, I would not let that person do that. God, I wouldn't let that person talk about you like that. I, I would deal with that person, but God doesn't. He, he allows them to go on. He's gracious. A.W. Tozer wrote in his book, The Knowledge of the Holy, about God's goodness and kindness. And this is one of my all-time favorite passages from any book that A.W. Tozer wrote. Let me read it to you. He said, the goodness of God is that which disposes him to be kind, cordial, benevolent, and full of goodwill toward men. He is tender-hearted and of quick sympathy and his unfailing attitude toward all moral beings is open, frank, and friendly. By his nature, he is inclined to bestow blessedness, and he takes holy pleasure in the happiness of his people. The goodness of God is the drive behind all the blessings he daily bestows upon us. God created us because he felt good in his heart, and he redeemed us for the same reason. The whole outlook of mankind might be changed if we could all believe that we dwell under a friendly sky and that the God of heaven, though exalted in power and majesty, is eager to be friends with us. He's eager to be friends with us. How eager is he to be friends with us? Even when we were dead in trespasses and sins, even when we were in league with the devil, even when we were the children of wrath, he intervened. But God. He stepped in because of his great mercy. Now, we see this truth about God, his goodness, his kindness. We see all of this. This is all, uh, these truths are fleshed out in the life of Jesus. 
So we have these statements in the Old Testament. We have this, this picture that develops from the statements of the Lord and the prophets. But then Jesus comes and he, he puts flesh on it. And so we see in Jesus what God is like. From him, we learn how God acts toward people. The penitent will find him merciful. The self-condemned will find him generous and kind. To the frightened, he is friendly. To the poor in spirit, he is forgiving. To the ignorant, considerate. To the weak, gentle. To the stranger, hospitable. This is what we see in Jesus. Jesus went about doing good and treating people respectfully and lovingly and kindly. And of course, Jesus was the physical manifestation of God. So in Jesus, we see ultimately all of these things coming together and manifested to us. So again, what was God's motive? What, what drove him to do what he did? It was out of the goodness and kindness of his own being that he intervened to save us from our hopeless state. But what was his objective? What is God aiming at in doing this? Well, Paul goes on and he tells us that we have been made alive, raised up, and seated together in the heavenly places. Now, these three verbs refer to the three successive historical events in the saving career of Jesus. You have, well, you could go back one and you could go to the death of Christ. But then, of course, Christ was raised up or uh, he was made alive, uh, resurrected from the dead. Then he was raised up, which is a reference to the ascension. And then he was seated at the right hand of God. Now, we know that was true about Christ. But what Paul is telling us here is that the same thing is also true about us. You see, what the Bible teaches is that what happened to Jesus literally happened to us spiritually, and what has literally happened to him will happen to us in the future. So Jesus was raised from the dead. We have been raised from the dead and will be raised from the dead. We've been brought to life spiritually, but there's a day when uh, even the, the bodies that have died of the saints will be raised up again. And just as Jesus ascended, we will ascend into heaven. Just as Jesus uh, has sat down at the right hand of God, we will be seated. But it's already happened in a spiritual sense. So spiritually speaking, we're already there. And since we're already there spiritually, that's really uh, the guarantee to us that we will one day be there entirely in, in our, the, the entirety of our being. This is our destiny. So what Paul's doing again here in this passage, for those of you that have been with us at, as we've been studying, he's once again wanting us to know the certainty of our heavenly destination. It's certain, just as certain as Jesus is sitting there at the right hand of God, we're spiritually there with him already. And that gives us the guarantee that we're going to be there with him completely in the future. 
And so the objective really is that God desires to have everlasting fellowship with his children and he has done everything that was needed to make sure that that happens. So this is God's objective. Why did he do all of this? Because he wants to have everlasting fellowship with us. Now, if you, the more you get to know about God and the more you get to understand yourself, the more radical this whole idea becomes. Why would God want to have everlasting fellowship with somebody like me? You see, if, if I know myself truly, that's absolutely the conclusion that I would have to draw. David said something like this when he said, when, when I consider the heavens, the work of your hands, he's speaking to God. When I consider the heavens, the work of your uh, fingers, he said, the moon and the stars that you have ordained, what is man that you were mindful of him? Why is it that God has this, this intense love for man? Why is it that, that there's just nothing uh, that can quench God's love for us? You see, far from being the bloodthirsty, the vengeful God, the, the God who's anxious to judge, no, God goes out of his way to avoid that. God had this relationship with the nation of Israel in the past. And as they continue to revolt against him and, and go further and further away from him, there's one point in the prophets, I think it's in Hosea, where God cries out with a, with a cry through the prophet. He says, oh, Ephraim, that was a name for the northern kingdom of Israel. Oh, Ephraim, how can I let you go? How can I let you go? For God, this was unbearable. It's like the, the thought of uh, a dearly loved child that's, that's gone astray and going astray and revolting and won't turn back. And you see the end. You see their demise is at hand and you're, you're grief stricken and you're heartbroken. And you're, How can I let you go? That's what God, that's God's heart toward humanity. God loves us in ways that we can't even fathom. And because of that great love, he desires to have everlasting fellowship with us. That's what all of this is about, that we would be with him forever in his kingdom. That we would be part of that kingdom of heaven. But this brings up a question, a question that's often asked. What will heaven be like? What will heaven be like? Now, the seventh verse gives us a little bit of insight into what heaven will be like. But let's think about that for a moment. What will heaven be like? It's interesting that the Bible gives us little glimpses. And it never really gives us a, a complete picture. And I think the reason for that is obvious. The reason is there's no picture that could do it justice. Paul the Apostle, who had an experience of being uh, caught up into the very presence of God in heaven, when he revived and he came back, he said he saw things that would be unlawful to try to put in human language. So because human language could never fully do it justice, God has not seen fit to really 
develop it, but just to give us little glimpses here and there. We have negative descriptions of heaven and we have positive descriptions of heaven. The negative descriptions are those descriptions that tell us the things that won't be there. So what will not be in heaven? Well, there will be no death in heaven. No death. Death will be a thing of the past. It will no longer be an issue. There will be no sorrow in heaven. There will be no crying in heaven, no tears in heaven. There will be no pain, no physical pain, no emotional pain. Those things will have passed away. There will be no sin. There will be no evil. The horrific things that we see happening in our world today. I'm sure many of you have heard about these 300 plus young teenage girls that were kidnapped in Nigeria by this radical Islamic group. And they're taking these young girls and selling them into sex slavery. And this is the kind of stuff that will never happen again. None of that will be there. None of that kind of evil will have any place in heaven. Those are the the negative descriptions. But then there's the positive descriptions. The positive descriptions, we know that there's a beautiful city. There's the holy city, the heavenly Jerusalem that's described that comes down from God out of heaven. It's a beautiful city with streets of gold, walls embedded with precious stones, gates made of pearl attended by angels, a crystal clear river of the water of life proceeds from God's throne. And there we find the tree of life with this fruit. It bears fruit and the fruit gives health to the nations. And there the positive descriptions conclude with the presence of God and the lamb. So these are little glimpses of heaven. But what we're told in verse seven is really the, like that, I can't even think of, of the proper word. It's, it's the, the activity of heaven, really. So th- this is what's going to be happening. Lots of things, obviously, are going to be happening. You know, some people get uh, an idea about heaven that it's going to be kind of boring. You know, they've got these clouds that you sit on and they hand you out these harps and you just pluck away on that thing forever. And where anybody ever came up with that picture, I have no idea. But they certainly did not get it from the pages of scripture. But haven't we heard people even say, haven't we seen posters and things that say, Man, I don't want to go to heaven. That's not going to be any fun there. I want to go to hell where the party is. No, no, no. Uh, The party's in heaven. There's no party in hell. Just so you know that right up front. So what's the activity? Well, there's going to be lots of activity. Think of all the amazing and wonderful activities that we do here on earth. All the amazing and wonderful activities that we do on earth, all the enjoyable things that we can experience through nature and through friendships and through God's creation. Well, heaven is going to be like a billion times better than what we have here. So there will be all kinds of activity, all the creativeness and all of the abilities that we have here. They're only going to be heightened there. So, you know, you look at the world, it's a pretty amazing 
thing to consider what man has been able to accomplish. But when you think of man unleashed from sin and living in the fullness of God's blessing, just think what the the possibilities will be in the future. So there'll be all that kind of activity, but the activity of God amazingly is this. The activity of heaven from the standpoint of God will be God showing the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So what's going to be happening forever? Well, listen, forever, it's going to take forever, actually. Only eternity will suffice for the complete display of the surpassing riches of God's grace. Forever and ever and ever, God is going to be showing us how much he loves us. He's going to be unfolding for us the riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Jesus Christ. Here's the amazing thing about heaven. It's just going to go from from good to better, to better, to better, to better. When you, when you think it couldn't get any better than this, it will get better through all eternity. This is what God has awaiting those that put their trust in Christ. This is where we are headed. This is what God intends. His objective is that we be with him in his kingdom forever to experience the fullness of his grace and his love. And why does God want this and what motivates him to do it? It's the kindness and the goodness of his own being. It's because he's kind and good. And rather than leave us in our hopeless state, because he was rich in mercy, he intervened and he made us alive in Christ. And of course, he did all of this through the work of Jesus by sending Jesus into the world to deal with the sin issue, which he did upon the cross, and then to show the victory by rising again from the dead. So in closing, when it seemed there was no hope for man, God's mercy, love, and grace broke through. That's the story of the Bible. The picture of man in the Bible is he's in a hopeless state. But the gospel, the good news is that love broke through. God broke through. God intervened. He did an intervention. We're familiar with that idea, right? Today, intervention. You have, you have somebody that you love in your family who's maybe addicted to drugs or something like that or has some issue in their life that's destroying their life, what happens? The family gets together and say, we got to do an intervention. What's the purpose of the intervention? The purpose of the intervention is to save them. We don't want to see them go down this road. We don't want to see them destroy themselves or their loved ones. We want to see them rescued. That's what God did. He did an intervention. He came from heaven to earth. And it was his mercy that led him to do this. It was his grace. It was his love. That same mercy, love, and grace is here to break through your sin and misery today. If you find yourself in that place still, if you're there 
where you recognize that it's a hopeless situation. And many people are right there today. The tragedy for many people is they don't realize they're there. But when you come to realize it, when you come to understand that this is a hopeless situation, there's, there's no way out of this for me. This is when you are then the, the prime candidate for the intervention of God. You know, when, when people are doing interventions, there has to be the, the willingness on the person that they're intervening on behalf of, they, they have to re- receive that intervention. If they don't, if they just get angry and stomp out and say, you people are crazy, you don't know what you're talking about, I'm, I'm not any of those things, I'm perfectly fine, well, there's nothing you can do for them. But it's the person who says, you're right. Yes, my life is a wreck. Yes, I am miserable. Yes, I am destroying myself. Please help me. That's when the help comes. The same is true with God. The moment you recognize, I need an intervention, I need some power from outside to come and deliver me from this. God is there with his love and he's ready to break through. And all you need to do is turn to Jesus. And when you turn to Jesus, you'll find mercy and kindness and friendliness and forgiveness and love. That's what you'll find. I had the privilege yesterday of spending time with a good friend of mine who pastors a church out in the Inland Empire. And he comes from a gang background and a prison background. And, and because of that, God's used him and continues to use him in a significant way uh, amongst people with that kind of uh, background themselves. He was a heroin addict for years. And so I went over to the men's home that they run out of their church there. And I met some of the guys that lived there. One of the guys had just finished serving a 21-year sentence in prison. One of the guys, a young guy from Huntington Beach, had been on heroin for 10 years. He told me, this is the first time I've been clean in 10 years. And a couple of the other, one of the other young kids was part of a notorious gang. And one of the other kids had just messed up on drugs. But here they were with this new life. Here they were with this joy. Here they were talking about the love and the mercy of God. And it was so sweet. It was so beautiful. I was so blessed. But I was reminded once again of all of the things that we're talking about today. I was reminded of the helpless, hopeless state that we can find ourselves in. And I was also reminded of the great love of God that's ready to intervene on anyone's behalf that is looking for intervention. So wherever you're at today, if you're anywhere but in that place where you're experiencing God's love and grace, you can move into a whole new position today by simply turning to Christ. And if you haven't done that, I urge you to do it. And of course, many of you have done that. Many of you are believers. But let me just say this in closing to you. Maybe you're in a situation right now that just seems impossible. Maybe you're in some kind of difficulty and you think, I'm going to go under. I'm never going to survive. I'm not going to make it. Well, remember these two words, but God. 
bring God into the equation and know that he is there and he's going to make a way. He's going to do something. He's going to take care of you. Lord, thank you for this amazing gospel, this good news, this glorious news that you have intervened. And Lord, that you've done so purely out of your own love and goodness and kindness toward us in our pitiful state. And Lord, I would pray today for believers here with us that need to just be reminded afresh of the fact that you did intervene and you will continue to do so. Lord, that they would remember that you're a God who's a present help in the time of trouble. That they would lay hold of those two words, but God. And Lord, I would also pray for any with us today who find themselves overwhelmed by their sin, sinking down in the misery of the consequences of their sin. I pray, Lord, that they would know today that there is a deliverer, that there is a savior. And Lord, that as they would turn to Jesus, you would meet them and greet them in your love and that you would pull them out of the pit and change the hopeless condition that they find themselves in right now to one of great hope. Give them your peace.